Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Chris Bassett throws Dansby Swanson with a gorgeous, perfectly located fastball to strike him out last night. From his position behind home plate, umpire Chad Fairchild somehow misread it and ruled a ball. A pitcher's jubilance and swagger melted into amazement and frustration. After walking halfway to the first base line, thinking his work was done, the tall right-hander shuffled back to the hill and eventually recorded the third out without incident or further damage. As between innings entertainment sprung into place, Bassett and Fairchild shared a brief interaction in which both apologized. I knew it was a strike, but at the same time, I think umpires, they have one of the hardest jobs in the world, Bassett said. I have no problem if an umpire misses a call. That happens. But especially if an umpire just accepts that, well, what am I going to say? It is what it is. I say all the time that it was a strike, and then I go back and look at it, and they're right. So I ain't going to be mad at no umpire. I'll tell you that. He said he was wrong. I said I was wrong. I was like, all right, let's move on. The moment is trending and serving as a muse for blog posts. When, in reality, it is utterly unremarkable. The truth, of course, is that such differences of opinion are woven into the fabric of the game. And they add to the complexity without detracting. Making the reactionaries who want to take a machete to a mosquito both wrong and misguided. Because the push for robot umpires, for all the good it believes it is accomplishing, is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of the sport of baseball, what it is and what it is not. Baseball is a game played by human beings and officiated by human beings. It is a game of errors and imperfections, of rough edges and managing expectations. Pitching, at once one of the most solitary endeavors in all of sports, also requires fostering a working relationship with the person calling balls and strikes. The job of establishing the canvas upon which to paint is sometimes messy and never without some push and pull. Perhaps when the machines usurp yet more control and all decisions are outsourced to cold artificial intelligence, a uniform strike zone will change the sport for the better. But even if that concession is made, And it's a big one, considering the lack of evidence to this point and the undeniable damage of eliminating the artistry and importance of the catcher, we will lose that fabric. And maybe that's not important to you. It is to me and so many others who don't need a flawless and disconnected ecosystem in which to enjoy the game. Baseball has always been about adaptation and a neutral party trying their level best to preserve the integrity of the game to foster a fair environment. The umpire does this not because they don't want to get yelled at or raked across social media coals, 
Those are concerns far less important than the main motivating factor, which is to do justice by the game, because that is the calling, a calling any umpire knows they can never fulfill. But maybe, just maybe, the pursuit of that perfection is more meaningful than the computerized version of Utopia. Maybe it is about the journey and not the destination. All over sports, we see changes being implemented to satiate viewing audiences, gamblers, and the squeakiest, most unimaginative minds with Wi-Fi access. Progress is essential and reinvention is required. So perhaps the Bassett Fairchild detente means nothing to you. It meant something to them, though, and that shared field of respect fostered a very human moment. Baseball should be careful and judicious in balancing that beautiful, complicated, and sometimes aggravating corner of the sport, because there should always be a place for it. Dave Pash has agreed to a multi-year extension with ESPN. The big lead has learned. Pash, who has been with the network since 2003, is a staple on NBA, college basketball, and college football broadcasts, and will be on the call for Game 3 of the Milwaukee Bucks, Boston Celtics Eastern Conference semifinals on Saturday afternoon. Nothing's guaranteed and there are no givens, Pash told TBL. You're only as good as your last broadcast. So when a company like ESPN is interested in retaining your services, whether you've been there for a month or almost two decades, which is the case for me, I'm grateful and I don't take it for granted. I know that sounds like a cliche stock answer, but it's true. When you get a chance to do high-level games and they're saying, hey, we want you to do this for more years to come, it's nice to be wanted. Pash, who became the radio voice of the Arizona Cardinals a year before joining ESPN, is versatile and malleable and holds the distinction of sitting within Bill Walton's blast radius on Pac-12 broadcasts. He likened his diverse array of assignments to opening up a new Christmas gift each week and the challenges and rewards that come with working alongside many different partners and teams. One of the veteran voice's best traits is his pliability, as he's able to go from the Walton broadcast to one with Hubie Brown or J.J. Redick, who has been next to him on the first three assignments of his own career. When you're younger, Pash said, you're so focused on yourself. You're so focused on getting the stories you want to get in and pleasing your bosses. I think as you grow confident in your ability and your employer shows confidence in you, you start to think how you should think, which is, how do I make the producer the best he or she can be? Or how do I make the analyst the best that he or she can be? While many play-by-play voices shy away from giving their opinion or questioning calls or strategy completely, Pash stands out by seeking it out. It's a trade he admired in Sean McDonough that he's incorporated into his repertoire. I feel like it's part of the job, he says. So I'm constantly doing that because if I want to know about it, I think the fan at home wants to know. And it may not always be an opinion that's shared by the viewer, but at least I'm getting the viewer to think. That's part of the documentation of the game. I just hope to do play-by-play as part of my career, he continues. I didn't know at what level. I never thought I would get to a level where I was doing national games or NFL games, and now this will be year 21 with the Cardinals and year 19 with ESPN. So the fact that they're willing to continue to have me do it for years to come, I'm grateful and at times pinch myself. Last night, the New York Yankees were in Toronto to play the Blue Jays. In the bottom of the second inning, slugger Matt Chapman tagged a 1-2 pitch from Jordan Montgomery to right field. It was long and it was deep, but Giancarlo Stanton got up and stole a homer from Chapman with a fantastic catch. 
You wouldn't have known that if you were listening to John Sterling calling the game on the Yes Network. The 83-year-old play-by-play man had no idea what was going on during the play. He thought Chapman hit a home run and called it as such for a solid 10 seconds before realizing something was amiss before his partner, Susan Waldman, clued him in. Pitch, one, two. Swung out in the air to right. Back goes Stanton on the track at the wall, leaping, and she is gone. It is a home run. They're all waiting. And why are they waiting? Because Stanton popped the ball. This was notably worse than Sterling's previous gaffe that came earlier in the year in which he happily shouted about a Stanton long ball that was caught well before the wall. At least in that scenario, he figured out what was actually happening relatively quickly. In this instance, he clearly had no idea what the hell was going on for a full 10 beats. Context clue, like Chapman trotting back to the dugout, apparently didn't help. Sterling is a veteran, but it is hard to understand what the thought process was here. If an announcer is unsure about what's unfolding before their eyes, it's best to sit tight and wait instead of confusing viewers by guessing at what's happening. The Philadelphia 76ers put a momentary scare into the Miami Heat during game one of their Eastern Conference semifinal series last night before the lack of Joel Embiid and a near-perfect performance from Bam Adebayo proved decisive. With the result decided, Sixers backcourt mates Tyree Maxey and James Harden headed to their bench. And then something weird happened. Harden sat down first. Maxey plopped down four or five seats to his right. Harden got up. The moment Harden arrived at his spot, Maxi then got up and walked in the other direction. You can see all this on a YouTube video titled Tyrese Maxi doesn't want to sit next to James Harden, colon, you fucking suck. It has over a million views. Now, if you couldn't pick it up from the extremely subtle Tyrese Maxi doesn't want to sit next to James Harden, colon, you fucking suck title. The implication here is that these two don't like each other. The title attributes a quote to Maxi that he didn't say with some of the most confusing and confounding punctuation you'll ever see. Random ass spaces, including one before the closed exclamation mark, makes one wonder how the education system could have failed this person. But like, you can't do this, right? A million times people have now navigated over to YouTube and watched a video of Maxi moving away from Harden twice on the bench, and most have walked away thinking there was a verbal confrontation. This did not happen. We live in hell, and misinformation is the most valuable resource. What actually happened on the bench, if anybody cares at this point, and it's abundantly clear that they don't, is that Maxi was motioned over by Sixers assistant Sam Cassell, so he changed seats. That's it. And it just doesn't matter because people saw this initial video, read the caption, and kept it moving. In their minds, Harden and Maxi had it out on the bench, and the Sixers have extreme chemistry issues in addition to personnel issues. The internet continues to be a massive mistake. The 
The Oakland Athletics have been shockingly competent so far in 2022, despite a massive offseason teardown. Through 23 games, the A's are 10 and 13 and started 9 and 8 before losing five of their last six. Despite defying all expectations, Oakland has record low attendance as fans refuse to show up. Given what's happening with the franchise, they're right to stay away. On Monday night, the A's welcomed 2,488 fans to Oakland Coliseum. That's not a typo. There's no misplaced comma. The stadium holds over 63,000, which means it was at 3.9% capacity for the team's 6-1 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays. Over 11 home dates this season, Oakland has seen 92,648 fans come through the turnstiles. That's an average of 8,422 per game, by far the lowest in Major League Baseball. The Pittsburgh Pirates are the next lowest, averaging over 12,000 per game. There are two factors at work in the A's tanking attendance. First is the team's off-season fire sale. The front office traded Chris Bassett, Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, and Sean Manea, and all that came after allowing several free agents to walk. The goal of removing these players from the roster was not only to tank and rebuild, but to reduce payroll and rake in cash for ownership. Oakland's opening day payroll was a paltry $48 million and change. And this kind of tanking for profit is not only allowed by Major League Baseball, it's practically encouraged. Bear in mind, the A's went 86-76 and 76 in 2021 and were firmly in the wildcard chase. There was no need for a teardown. Things were going fine. The first signal a shift in strategy might be coming was allowing longtime manager Bob Melvin to leave for the same position with the San Diego Padres. Oakland didn't even request compensation from the Friars for luring Melvin away. The second reason fans aren't showing up is A's ownership's ongoing flirtation with moving the team to Las Vegas. Despite Oakland approving construction of a new ballpark exactly where the team wanted it, ownership continues to tease a move to Sin City. So the team got rid of a number of beloved players and is threatening to move. Of course, fans aren't showing up to support that. Why would they? Ownership has shown a complete disregard for its customers. There's no reason for them to continue supporting a product that doesn't seem to care about them. We hope A's fans continue to stay away. Hell, we hope there's a game with fewer than a thousand fans or none. Boycott, protest. Send the message, not just to the A's, but to every ownership group that wants to tank and toy with the emotions of the very people who subsidize their franchises. Back to Philadelphia, where Joel Embiid remains out indefinitely. In the meantime, the spotlight shines that much brighter upon two people, Doc Rivers and James Harden. Harden needs to find a previous high-scoring version of himself to give the Sixers a chance against the Miami Heat in the second round of the postseason. And Rivers needs to manage his center rotation, Sands Embiid, in a way that gives his team a chance to win against a superior opponent. In game one, neither of those things happened. Harden managed only 16 points on 13 shots, an unfortunate but not terribly surprising outcome given his lack of burst has been apparent for months, and Miami's elite defense is 100% keyed in on him. What is more concerning is the way Rivers simply refused to adjust his center rotation and stuck to his guns by throwing DeAndre Jordan out there while the Heat treated him like barbecue chicken. Rivers has been a stubborn defender of Jordan all season as Embiid's backup. 
That has not changed now that the playoffs have arrived. Instead of giving young guns, Paul Reed or Charles Bassey, a chance to use their athleticism to make a difference, he gave Jordan the majority of the minutes. And it went exactly how you'd expect. Jordan played 17 minutes and posted four points, two rebounds, two blocks, two fouls, and had two turnovers. The Sixers were outscored by 22 points when Jordan was on the floor. When asked about it after his team lost by 14, Rivers gave a verbal middle finger to anybody questioning his decision-making. Like what, what went into the decision to start DeAndre and kind of how you handled the center rotation the rest of the game? Um, we just felt like, uh, you know, we talked to our guys. Uh, they wanted a big guy, a big roller. Uh, I thought in the second half, that's how he has to play every night. That those first four or five minutes were great uh, from him. That's what we need. Uh, we also, we love Paul, but we, we, we don't need Paul in foul trouble. And that's why you don't want to start him. So uh, we like DJ. We're going to keep starting him, whether you like it or not. Uh, that's what we're going to do because our guys believe him. It's funny at halftime. We asked our key guys, we were thinking about it, because I thought Paul Millsap gave some decent minutes and to a man, that's where they wanted to go. In case it was not obvious, let's make it clear right now. The Sixers will lose this series badly if Jordan continues to start at center. Philly obviously has very little hope without their MVP big man and just have to pray he can come back sooner rather than later. That would be true even if Jordan was playing at a decent level. But he's not. And a smart coach is capable of mitigating the damage by using backups that complement the rest of his lineup. Jordan compliments nobody. He doesn't have anywhere near, he doesn't have anywhere near the same verticality he did back in his heyday. One need look no further than his rebounding numbers for evidence of that. As recently as two years ago, Jordan was still averaging double digit rebounds per game in limited minutes. He had exactly two last night. That lost athleticism means Jordan is of very little use in both the pick and roll and defending the rim, which he has never been particularly good at anyway. Even prime Jordan would struggle defending this Miami offense filled with motion and handoffs running through opposing center, bam, out of bio. This version of Jordan is an active detriment to Philly's defensive schemes attempting to stop those actions. Yet, as you just heard, Rivers refuses to alter the game plan. What he says to the media and what he actually does very well could be two different things. We'll know for sure come Wednesday's game two. But it's not the first time Rivers has snapped at reporters that he's not going to play young guys over Jordan just for the sake of it. He trusts his old center more than he does Reed or Bassey, and it might sink his chances of keeping his job when it's all said and done. If the Sixers lose this series because Embiid couldn't come back quick enough or couldn't do enough once he was back, that isn't really Rivers' fault. But fair or not, he's going to keep taking the blame for keeping Embiid in their series-clinching game against Toronto long enough to catch an on from Pascal Siakam that caused his orbital fracture. If he continues to stick with Jordan despite clear and obvious evidence that those lineups are not working, the calls for change will only grow louder. If he refuses to change things up and gets mad at anybody who dares suggest otherwise in press conferences after losses, Rivers is going to get himself fired. We all know the definition of madness. Rivers appears to be willing to not only lean into that, but defend it to the grave. Unless Jordan suddenly finds a younger version of himself to tap into, the clock is ticking on Rivers' tenure in Philly.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.